0: Good morning. There we go. Good to have you with us this morning. Uh, My name is Andy Callis. I'm the youth pastor here at Cape Bible Chapel. If I don't know you, but glad for you to be with us this morning and be able to share with you from God's Word. If you call yourself a Christian, and I would say that most of you probably would say yes, that's what I would call myself, a Christian, you have a specific task that has been given to you. And it is not an easy one. And I think that most Christians feel like they are ill-equipped for this task. They don't think they have the right tools. They don't think that they maybe have the right amount of knowledge. They don't have the right amount of experience. It seems overwhelming. It seems daunting. They seem like maybe they don't know how to do it or even where to start. And this task is given to us in Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. It's called the Great Commission, and here's what Jesus said. He said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Imagine how daunting of a task this must have seemed like for these 11 average guys. Right? We remember who these guys were when Jesus called them. Just average guys. And he's like, I want you to make disciples of all nations. You guys right here. And they must have been like, "Um, how are we going to do that? (laughs) Uh, we don't have enough knowledge. We don't have enough experience. Uh, we don't have cars, motorboats, or jets to get to all these nations. Like, how is this going to happen? And so I'm sure it was a very daunting, seemingly impossible task to make disciples of all nations. And uh, we can look at those guys. But man, those poor guys. That's, that's tough for them that Jesus gave them that assignment. But thankfully, He wasn't talking to me. He was talking to those eleven guys. Well. Jesus expands this out, and in Acts 1.8, he gives a very similar final statement, and he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And it's here in the book of Acts that we see this task really go beyond the scope of just the 11. Uh, According to Acts 1, verse 15, there's 120 followers of Christ receiving this promise, and this command from Jesus. And as you move through the book of Acts, as we did with the youth over this last semester, you start to notice more and more people giving their lives to Christ and more and more people testifying about the grace of God through Jesus' death and resurrection, and they're telling other people about it. They realize that Jesus has passed this command on down to me to also make disciples. In fact, you see in the second half of the book of Acts someone who was so great at making disciples, and his name was Paul. And he gave relentless testimony about Jesus being the Messiah, and he made disciples everywhere he went and with everything that he had. Here's what he said in Colossians 1, 28 through 29. He said, him, talking about Jesus, we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Paul's like, I'm giving it everything I've got, and I remember that it's him working in and through me as I'm doing that. So this command was not just for the 11. It was not just for the 120. We see in Acts that everybody who begins to follow Jesus realizes this command to make disciples is for them as well. Jesus makes the call really clear. It's not It's not that it's complicated or hard to understand. We look at Matthew 28. He says, go, and really more literally, this would just be, not go on a mission trip. Those are great too, but as you're going about your everyday life, while you're going, make disciples, baptize them, teach them, and know that I'm with you while I, while you go through and do this. And in Acts 1, he says kind of the same thing, but An additional caveat there is he says you're going to receive power by my spirit to be able to do this. This is how I'm going to be with you. My spirit is going to be the right tool that you need that's going to be deposited in you as a believer. He's going to be the difference between an overwhelming task that you'll never be able to do versus a life-giving, dependent-on-God doable kind of assignment. So as you think about this new year coming up, I don't know if you do New Year's resolutions uh, or not, but oftentimes whenever we have you know, a new year approaching, it just causes us to kind of think about where I've been, kind of where I'm headed, maybe some things that need to change or things I need to prioritize. And I want to challenge you today that in 2020, a priority that you, that you make in your life is to make disciples. Because it's a priority. It's really the priority, I would say, that Jesus has given us as his followers. So if you call yourself a Christian, you've been called by Christ not only to be a disciple. He has called you to do that. You want to take care of that first, to repent of your sins, to trust Christ, to be a disciple, to follow Jesus. But he's called you to bring other people along with you that follow you as you follow Christ. And that would be a great goal for you this year you probably think, well, that seems scary, that seems difficult, that seems time-consuming, and I don't know if I can do that. And if you feel that way, that is perfectly okay, because as we're going to see today, the disciples felt that way, and they had good reason for feeling that way, that there's no way we're going to be able to accomplish this task, because they didn't have a great track record leading up to Acts chapter 1. But Jesus gives them the power, he gives them the right tools to accomplish the task, and he has done the same thing for us today. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 1. If you want to flip your Bibles open to Acts 1, that's where we'll be at today as Jesus launches them out on this disciple-making mission. And we're going to see the disciples, they struggle with this, but we're going to see how Jesus has a solution to equip them for this task of making disciples. So, what tools do you have at your disposal to make disciples this year? What power has God given you? First of all, our first point today is you have the power to make disciples through the inspired eyewitness testimonies. The inspired eyewitness testimonies. Let's look at Acts 1, verses 1 through 3. It says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the time when he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Luke begins by telling his friend Theophilus, there's a couple reasons why you can believe what I'm trying to tell you here. So in verse 1 he starts out and he says these guys, the disciples and the apostles, they've been chosen by Jesus himself and they saw, quote, all that he began to do and to teach. So they were there for his ministry. They saw all these things happen. It wasn't secondhand accounts for many of them. It was I was there. I was an eyewitness. I saw what he did. Additionally, in verse 3, not only were they eyewitnesses to his ministry, they were eyewitnesses to his resurrection by many infallible and unmistakable proofs. And we just don't throw around that word infallible, right? This is a very important word. In fact, the word used here in the Greek, it's the only time it's used in the entire New Testament. And it basically means evidence that's impossible to doubt or something that is sure and that it's just plainly known. So Jesus' resurrection was sure, it was plainly known, and it was very difficult for people to doubt it. And here's why. I want to quickly give you eight hard-to-miss, impossible, infallible proofs that show that Jesus was a resurrected uh, Lord. And number one is the two Marys at the empty tomb in Matthew 28, 9 through 10. Jot these down if you want to. So these are different resurrection appearances by Jesus. The two Marys at the empty tomb. So they, they see the stone rolled away. They hear from an angel that Jesus has risen. They go running off to tell the disciples and they see Jesus and he speaks to them and they worship him and they cling to his feet. This is an unmistakable proof, number one. Unmistakable proof, number two, the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. So there's two disciples that are walking along the road to Emmaus. They're talking about all the things that have been happening lately. And this mysterious guy comes up to him and starts asking them questions about all the things that's been going on. And it's Jesus, but he's disguised and they can't recognize him. But eventually he shows himself to them and they see that it's Jesus himself. So he appears to these disciples on the road to Emmaus. Uh, unmistakable proof number three, the disciples are in a locked room in John 20, 19 through 20. So the disciples are cowered down, uh, waiting for the Jews to come get them, like they just did Jesus, and uh, probably pretty scared, intimidated, confused, not knowing what to do, and then all of a sudden, miraculously, Jesus appears in the middle of the room, and there he is. They see him, and he speaks to them. Unmistakable proof number four of the resurrection, the disciples and Thomas are in another locked room, and this is also in John 20, verses 26 through 28. So the disciples are hunkered down again. This time, Thomas, who wasn't with them before, he's with them this time. And he doubted. He was like, no, Jesus didn't show up. I don't know what you you guys were hallucinating or something. But this time, Jesus shows up. And he gives Thomas the physical proof that he was looking for. And he talks to his disciples once again. Unmistakable proof number five. The seven disciples are fishing in John 21. So Simon Peter declares a fishing trip, maybe kind of unsure of what they're supposed to do next. And he and some of the disciples, they go out and they start fishing, and Jesus appears to them on the shore. He helps them with a miraculous catch of fish and then challenges Peter to tend his sheep. So he keeps appearing to different people, several people, multiple times over. Unmistakable proof number six. Five hundred people at one time Jesus appeared to. Uh, Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians 15.6. He declares that Jesus uh, went on during the 40 days to appear to 500 people at the same time. And Paul even somewhat challenges the Corinthians by saying, many of these people are still alive to this day. Almost as if to say, if you doubt what I'm saying, these people are around. Just go talk to them. And they can tell you they've seen the resurrected Christ. Unmistakable proof number seven. 120 apostles based off of 1 Corinthians fifteen seven. So Paul also declares that Jesus appeared to all of the apostles. Who could that have been? Well, an apostle was somebody that saw Jesus' ministry and saw his resurrection based off of Acts one they They're looking for a replacement for Judas. So this guy has to be somebody who has been with us from the time of John's, bab- bab- John's baptism all the way up through Jesus' resurrection. And so there was 120 guys that saw the resurrected Christ. And unmistakable proof number eight And the last one is Paul in Acts 9 and 1 Corinthians 15.8. Paul finally says in 1 Corinthians, Jesus appeared to me, and we can read about that story in Acts 9. So hopefully you can see it's not easy to doubt Jesus' resurrection. There were so many people who saw his ministry and so many people who saw him rise from the dead, it's nearly impossible to doubt it because it's clearly and it's plainly known. So this is a huge tool that you and I have, one, for being a disciple. We're, We're not putting our faith just in a legend that was passed down from generation to generation. We're not putting our faith in uh, second-hand accounts. We're not putting our faith in just kind of what we think or what seems right to us. We're putting our faith in eyewitness accounts of people who were there that saw Jesus's ministry and saw him rise from the dead. So we have these written accounts today. We have them to read for ourselves. And as Paul said in 2 Timothy three fifteen through 17, these things have been written to us to make us wise to salvation, to help us understand how to be saved. And also, he says at the end of verse 17, they are to equip us for every good work, which would include making disciples. So just a little side question here is, have you spent time looking at these eyewitness accounts? Have you spent any time this week, as the Bible would call it, feeding yourself on the food that comes from God's Word from these eyewitnesses, these eyewitness accounts? That's part of what's going to give us the power and the strength to be able to be sent out and to make disciples for Christ. So the question really, as you can see from all these accounts here, is not whether Jesus rose from the dead or not. The real question is, why did he appear to these guys? Especially when I think of the 11 disciples. like Why did he appear to these guys? As we go through and we look at some of these different accounts, really the women are about the only ones that have a somewhat impressive um, way that they handle seeing the resurrected Christ. So the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they're rebuked for their slowness of belief. The disciples are cowered down behind closed doors two different times when Jesus shows up. Thomas doubts. He's like, I don't believe you, and I want physical proof. The seven disciples seem to head back to some of their old occupations of fishing for fish instead of fishing for men. And then we have Paul, who is trying to get as many Christians murdered as possible when he meets Jesus. What a group. Probably a group that you would pick, Right? It's like, wow, God chose these guys to spread his message and to make disciples. And if he chose these men and women to be witnesses and make disciples, then there's hope for you and I, right? And here's what's really interesting in verse 1. So Luke says in Acts 1.1, he says, All that Jesus began to do and to teach... So in verses 2 and 3, he talks about that a little bit more. So Jesus has ministered on the earth for three years. He's done some amazing things. He dies. He rises from the dead. He tells his disciples about the kingdom of God. And I would say this is at least the climax, if not the conclusion. Like, wow, it doesn't get any better than this. But Luke says, oh, no, no. This is only the beginning of what Jesus was beginning to do. It's like, really? Okay, well, well, what is coming up? Luke says, after Jesus was taken to heaven, his spirit, the Holy Spirit, was going to take over. The Holy Spirit was going to be the one who started to give commands to the disciples from there on out. And the testimonies of these eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry and resurrection, it changes drastically when the Holy Spirit comes on the scene. So this is the second vital tool that we need in making disciples, the Holy Spirit. First of all, we have the power to make disciples because we have these in these eyewitness accounts and testimonies. Second of all, we have the power to make disciples through the Holy Spirit. This is in Acts 1, verses 4 through 9. And it says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So our second tool that we have in making disciples is a person, and it is the Holy Spirit. Jesus declares to his disciples, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And this same power is promised to us today. You, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have the power through the Holy Spirit to make disciples. And this promise was very important because thus far the disciples looked anything but powerful, right? We look at their track record garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is like, please, stay awake, pray for me. This is like my most difficult hour. You can be there for me, right? Yeah, Jesus, we can do that. They're snoring, okay? They're, they're sleeping when Jesus needed them the most. And then Jesus is arrested, and uh, they're like, well, we're out of here. They deserted. him. Everybody left. Peter denies even knowing Christ. And we see in some of these other accounts, they're doubting. They're afraid. They're bailing out on their new task. If anybody needed power, these guys needed power, right? And Jesus is like, you're going to get that power through the Holy Spirit. And we see in this section, though, interestingly, they're still counting on Jesus to do this work more or less by himself. So Jesus gives them the game plan in verse 4. He says, here's what I want you to do. Don't leave Jerusalem. Wait for the promised spirit that I told you about. He's going to provide power for you. Uh, In fact, in verse 5, he says, you know, this Holy Spirit, John even talked about it. Remember three years back, John was talking about somebody was going to come who wasn't just going to baptize with water. He was going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. That's me, and uh, that's getting ready to happen not many days from now. So three years ago, they heard about this, and who is maybe thinking, who is this Holy Spirit? How is he going to come? How is that going to work? And Jesus talks to them about this spirit again in John 14, 15, and 16. He's talking to his disciples, and he says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, who's going to come and help you, he's going to guide you into all truth, John 16, 13. He's going to glorify the Son, John 16, 14. And he is going to convict, and he's going to judge in John 16, 8. So they heard all these things before, but instead of anxiously asking the question well, when is this guy going to show up, God? Like, this sounds amazing. I can't wait for the Holy Spirit to come and give me the power to do what you want me to do. Instead, they say something quite different in verse 6. They say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's kind of as if they were saying, we've heard this Holy Spirit talk before, and uh, we're thinking, though, this is really the perfect time for you, Jesus, to restore the kingdom. Because we kind of know us, and we don't have a very great track record here, and I mean we've seen you walk through walls, we've seen you do a lot of stuff lately where it's like you seem to have this immortal, indestructible body, and uh, we're thinking now is the perfect time, not for us, (laughs) not for us, but for you to come and to make disciples of all nations. And we're thinking you would have a great, the, the perfect ability to be able to kick Rome out put Israel back on top, reign forever and ever in this immortal body. And really, when you think about it, doesn't that make more sense? Doesn't that make more sense to just be like, Jesus, you go do it. I mean, disciples, we struggle. You've seen us in action. We'll kind of follow you around like we have been, but why don't you go and accomplish this daunting task? Because it seems like the perfect time for you to do, do so. Death couldn't stop you. You have this divine power. You can change hearts. You can stop storms. You can walk through walls. You're like this divine superhero. We just want to keep following you around. And it does make a lot of sense. But in verse 7, Jesus corrects them. He's like, listen, it's not about the times or the seasons. The Father has those determined. I don't even know whenever I'm going to restore the kingdom fully. But your focus is wrong. You're asking what I'm going to do, but I'm telling you this is what you are going to do. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. You are going to receive power through the Spirit to be my witnesses. And this job is now yours to testify to other people about me. And in verse 8, he says, here's how it's going to work. You're going to be my witnesses to places much further than what I went. And you're going to receive power by the Spirit to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And what's so shocking is as soon as he said these probably hard to hear statements poof he's gone he starts floating up in the sky and as you as you read this account you you almost kind of feel like he's either starting to levitate as he's finishing up his last statement or he says his last statement and it's like toodles i'm gone and he starts floating off and they don't have time to debate and say wait wait Jesus, I don't know if this is the best idea. What if we have a compromise, and maybe you do some of this, and we'll do some of this, and we'll kind of work together. There's no time to debate. There's no time to ask questions. Like, how will we know the Holy Spirit comes? I don't, you didn't tell us exactly. There was no time to ask questions. There was no time to debate. And all of a sudden, Jesus is just floating off into the sky, and they're sitting there probably with their heads cocked to the side, saying, what just happened? And uh, I want to show you, uh, this is related to what I just said. I want to show you a picture of my dog. Her name is Sage. i bring it up here on the screen. And she has this head cocked to the side thing. She's got it down. And I've, I've got one more picture. I really just want to show off how cute my little dog is. But uh, I've got another picture of her as well. Or just You kind of see it. It's like, huh. And she does this whenever I'm looking right at her. And I'm like, Sage, I'm talking to you and I want you to get this, you know? And she would be like, what? what I know you're talking she's like in her doggy mind she's thinking, I know you're talking to me. I know this is important because you're you're zeroed in on me, but I just can't quite understand English. You know, I can understand kind of rough and stuff like that, but I don't I don't know what you're saying, but I really want to. And when I picture this scene That's kind of how I picture the disciples, is they're just like, huh? Wait. uh." And the great thing is, though, is that Jesus sends somebody else to kind of help smooth it over for him a little bit. But I just imagine them with that dog trying to figure out what you're saying, head cocked to the side, like, man, what is going on? Wait a second. We're the plan? Like, we're the plan? Couldn't there be a different plan that maybe would work better than us? But as David Platt says about making disciples of Christ, he says, we are plan A and there is no plan B. We are plan A in making disciples. There is no plan B. And you might wonder, okay, like why would God do this? Because it does seem like it would be so much more effective if God would just do this himself and not entrust this to us. But I think the answer is found in... Hebrews 11.6. Many of you know this verse where part of it says without faith it's impossible to please God. God wants us to have faith in him. He wants to bolster our faith in him. And what better way to do that than to give us a task that we cannot do on our own. This is an impossible task by ourselves. We need his eyewitness testimonies. We need his power through the spirit to be able to do this. So the disciples are left with a monumental task. He gives them a big promise. This promise is for us today as well. But God is going to equip them for this task. He's going to give them the right tools. He's going to give them the right person and deposit his spirit within each one of them to give them the power to be able to make disciples and to be a witness for him. In fact, he said in John 16, 7, it's actually better for you if I go away so that the Holy Spirit will come. It would be better for you if I leave. And I don't think they remember that statement whenever Jesus is floating off. Wait, no, you're gone. And I don't feel like this is better, but you tell me it's going to be better. And he promised power. And as we continue on and we read through the book of Acts, we see that very thing, right? We see these guys be transformed from a bunch of scared, doubting disciples to bold witnesses for Christ. And this message of the gospel starts to go global. So the, the same Holy Spirit that those original apostles received, other believers in the book of Acts, they received that same Holy Spirit as well. And you and I have received the same Holy Spirit too. Paul talked about this in Ephesians 4, 4-6. He said, there's one body and there's one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So you might question whether or not you're capable of making disciples, but you have the same power that they did. You have the same power through the Holy Spirit. He gives you boldness. He gives you courage. He gives you strength, wisdom, knowledge, ability to be a witness for Christ. So we have the power through the Holy Spirit, and this leads us to our last point, something that you actually don't have power to do. You don't have the power to know when Jesus will return. And this is Acts 1, verses 10 through 11. It says, And while they were gazing into heaven, they got that head cocked to the side, looked down. While they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So they're standing there, not enough time to really scratch their noggins, and abruptly these angels appear to them, and they're like, what are you doing? Why are you staring at the sky? And I think if I was one of them, I would have said, well, here's what happened. Like, Jesus just gave us this monumental task to carry his message to the ends of the earth, and then he floated off. I mean, doesn't that give us pretty good reason to be staring off in the sky wondering what just happened? He just kind of wrecked us with this statement. And yet, the angels are like, you heard him, go and do what he said, go and wait for the power from on high, wait for the Holy Spirit, and hop to it, because you don't know when he's going to come back. And I can be kind of a a slow decision maker at times, Uh, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, sometimes it can cause me to delay what I have already been clearly told what to do, and I can drag my feet and put it off, and maybe you do that sometimes too. And here's the deal, though. When God has told us clearly what to do, and we don't do it, we're sinning. That's just what it is. We can't really call it anything else. We have been commanded to make disciples in Matthew 28. We've been told to be his witnesses in Acts 1. If we're not doing this, if this is not on our radar, if this is not something we care about, we're sinning against God. And we can't drag our feet on it. And the reason is because just as we celebrated Christmas and we all believe, yeah, Jesus came as a man. You know, he was born 2,000 years ago, Christmas. And, and we fully believe that that's what happened. Just as, just as clearly and just as, uh, just as sure as we can be of that happening, Jesus is coming back. And I think in the church and as believers, a lot of times we don't think about that. We, we think, well, we've got time or they've got time. He's coming back, and we don't know when that's going to be. It could be today. We don't know. We don't have the power to know when he is going to return. Nor do we know what's going to happen in the future of our lives or in the future of lives of others that we know. So he is going to come back at a time unknown to us. And he's going to come back, and he's going to meet your neighbors. He's going to come back and meet your co-workers. He's going to come back and meet your teammates. He's going to come back and meet your spouse or your kids. And what's he going to find? Are they going to be ready for him? And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say that falls on you, and that falls on me. We're plan A in reaching them for Christ and making a disciple out of those people that are in my sphere of influence. We're plan A, and there is no plan B, and we really have no clue how much time we've got left. That's something to remember. We do not have the power to know when Jesus will return. So we have the power of these eyewitness testimonies in God's Word. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't have the power to know how much time, but we do have the right tools. Okay? We have the right tools. We have the power. So where do we start? Like, okay, you've convinced me, Andy. This really hasn't been on my radar. It needs to be what do I do? And I'm just going to tell you it's not hard, it's simple, it's not complicated. Well, I'm not going to say it's not hard. It is hard, but it's simple. It can be very straightforward. It's not complicated, but it just takes priority and it takes some effort. So where do you start? First of all, I would say pray. Pray. God, show me that person who is probably right under my nose, maybe right under my roof, that I need to reach for Christ, that I need to make a disciple. I need to help them mature in the faith that they already have, wherever they're at. Show me who that person is. And we're commanded to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out workers and he wants to send us out. So first of all, pray. Second of all, talk. Find out where that person is at spiritually. Ask them some questions. Um, What's your church background? You spent much time in church. Do you go to church right now? What are some of your spiritual beliefs? Are spiritual things important to you? Does that kind of guide your life in any way? Tell me about some things that, that you believe. What do you think it takes for somebody to go to heaven? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about Christianity? Things like that. Ask questions. Do you spend any time reading the Bible? Have you read the Bible before? Do you pray? What do you pray about? So ask some questions. Talk to them. Thirdly, read. We have these incredible eyewitness accounts. And ask if they'd be interested in looking at some of them. Like, hey, you want to read John chapter 3? Uh, read Romans chapter 3. And we can do it together, separate, but let's get together and let's talk about it. And let's see what you learned and what I learned. And, and let's uh, look at these accounts. And then the last thing would be pray again. Uh, pray for the powerful spirit to give you wisdom, to give you insight, to know the best way to go about that relationship. Endurance. These relationships can be discouraging at times Encourage to guide this person to repentance and or to help them grow in their faith. So as I said, it's not complicated, but it takes time and it can be difficult and it can be messy because people are sinners just like us and it can be tough. But that's why we need to remember we've been given tools by God to do this. And oftentimes I have found that I know more than I need to know. I know enough. I just have to be a step ahead of this person. And many times I grow more than the disciple does because I realize they're looking to me as an example. And I need to live up to that. So I can't say, hey, how's Bible reading going when I haven't touched my Bible? Like, I've got to be held to a standard whenever they're looking to me. So you're never going to get to some place where it's like, I am now spiritually ready, I've got it all together, and now I can make a disciple out of somebody no, that's not the way it works. In fact, disciple-making is going to help you become the person that Christ already wants you to be. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We're not doing it perfectly, but we're trying to do it. Uh, additionally, making disciples, it's satisfying because you're making a lasting impact for eternity and you're obeying Christ's command. So just a couple personal examples that I just wanted to give to you of times where I've seen God bless some of my feeble efforts. And I say feeble because I will never write a book about how to make disciples because I'm not a pro at it. And I'll never write a book about evangelism because I'm the best evangelist you will ever meet because I'm not either one of those things. But I want to just share a couple examples just to show that it's really not hard. It's not complicated. I keep saying it's not hard. It is hard. It's, it can be difficult, but it's simple. It's just a matter of prioritizing this in your life. So I just want to talk to a couple categories of people. Workers. If you're a worker and you have a job, that's most of you in here. Are you discipling your co-workers? Here's a thought. Have you ever just asked a few people at work, hey, would you be interested in doing a Bible study with me? What's the worst they can say? No, I'm not. Okay, well, I'll go ask somebody else. I I did this in college, and I prayed about it, and uh, I worked at a retail store. We had teenagers all the way up to people that were near retirement age, and I just went through and didn't really discriminate who I asked. There was about 10 people that I asked and said, hey, would you be interested in doing a Bible study and just saw what God did with that, and I had about three or four people that took me up on it. I was like, okay, great. We picked out a night to meet. Um, I asked them, what's the topic you're interested in? They picked the topic of suffering, so they picked an easy one for me. You know? But I wasn't about to do that by myself. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to right way. I'm going to find a little book that I can understand, and uh, I'm going to get these books for everybody, and we're going to go through this. And so that's what we did. And we went through, and we did a Bible study on suffering. And I don't know where these coworkers ended up eventually, but I was attempting to do my part to be a witness and to make disciples. Ask your coworkers, Hey, you want to do a Bible study at break or at lunch or some other time? And attempt to disciple your co-workers. Fathers. Many of you are fathers or husbands. Are you discipling your wives and your children? You are the spiritual leader in your home. That is a task that God has given you. It's a daunting task. It's a high calling, but it's something that he's called you to do. And men, we can put a lot of pressure on ourselves um, with this. But as a pastor that I like to listen to out in California named Milton Vincent said as he began a men's ministry in his church, he simply challenged guys in his church. He said, read 20 verses uh, with your family in the morning or at night and pray with them. He's like, if you do that, bam, you just did family worship. You just led your family and family worship. You can pat yourself on the back. Good job. You don't have to explain everything. You don't have to know what everything means in there, but you read scripture with them. You prayed with them. You led your family and family worship just like God wants you to do. So good job. Keep it up. And uh, this takes courage because there might be some questions asked that you don't know the answer to, and that is totally okay. You have the scriptures. You have the power of the Holy Spirit. You can do it. I know with our own kids that a lot of times uh, we put them to bed later than we anticipate, and it's like, we have a process, though, and they've gotten used to it, and I don't think they would let us put them to sleep without going through it. And so many times I will open up my Bible Gateway app. There's a verse of the day, and we'll sit there for a couple minutes. I'll read it, and I'll just say, hey, what do you guys think this means? And explain maybe a hard word or a phrase, and just ask them questions about it and explain it. And then we'll go through and we'll sing a song, acapella. I'm not busting out the guitar. I'm not Jeff Grindstaff. I'm not busting out any other instrument. And we will sing a Christmas carol, a VBS song, and or a contemporary worship song. It can be a wide array. There's just certain things that we won't sing uh, that's like on Nickelodeon or something. But we will sing a song that has to do with worship, and then I'll pray with them. And it takes five or ten minutes. And It's making disciples of my kids. And a lot of times I don't even think about it that way. I just think this is what we do. But it's making disciples of my children. And I've been called and tasked to do that. So dads, are you doing that? Because, you know, making disciples under your own roof, that's making disciples. That counts. In fact, those are the people closest to you. And if you're not making disciples there and you're making disciples elsewhere, you're missing the boat. You need to make disciples under your own roof first. Moms got a lot of moms out there. Are you discipling your children? You hold a special place in the heart of your kids that dads, uh, it's just different. And your, your children have a special just heart toward you, and you have a special ability to nurture and to care for their physical and their emotional needs from the moment they enter the world. My challenge to you is, are you nurturing them spiritually? And this isn't always the case but a lot of times, especially when they're little, you might have the most time with them that anybody has, more time than dad, more time than other people, and are you pointing them to Jesus Christ? They're very young, they're very impressionable, they continue to be that way, but especially when they're little, what are you teaching them? And there was a, uh, a book that I still like to go through with the kids every now and again, but it's been a little while, and it's more for young kids, it's called The Big Picture Story Bible, and I can't remember who told me about that, but if you have young kids, I would highly recommend that book. Because it goes through and it talks about what's, what's the main point of the Bible. What is God trying to tell us in Scripture? And on top of that, it literally has big pictures for them to look at. And uh, it's, it's a really great book that we've taken our kids through. Additionally, my wife takes time uh, to study the Bible at home with the kids when I'm not there. And she is much more patient about taking the time that's needed to answer their questions and uh, about the Word and about life. And so I appreciate that. But moms, wives, what are you doing to disciple your kids and others? The last group, singles. Are you using your singleness to disciple others? Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians 7. You have an extra measure of time and freedom that married people and people that have families don't have. So how are you using that? Are you using that to serve God and to reach out to the lost and make disciples? And I have been very blessed in my years here to have some great single adult volunteers that are willing to not just meet during Sunday school or Sunday morning or Wednesday night with with the youth that we have. They're like, hey, let's go out and do something during the week, on the weekend, because they want to make disciples. And oftentimes that happens in a context of one-on-one or one-on-two and figure out, where, where are you at? And it's not, again, it's simple. It's let's go meet and eat somewhere. Let's play a game. Let's talk about what's God doing in your life. What's he teaching you? What questions do you have? Let's maybe look at some scripture. Let's pray and then go home. It's just a matter of making it a priority and doing it. And really, the list could keep going. Athletes, what are you doing to make disciples on your team? Couples, what are you doing to make disciples of other couples that you know? Kids, what are you doing to make disciples of your friends? Neighbors, what are you doing to make disciples in your neighborhood? And the whole point is, you have the necessary tools. You have the power through the scriptures. You have the power through the Holy Spirit. You don't have to be like me, laying on your back, being like, what am I going to do now? I've exerted all of my effort that I've had to give, digging this ditch, okay? That's not what it's like. You've been given the power through the Holy Spirit and through God's Word to go and do this. Now take a step of faith and do it. Pray. Talk read, pray some more, you're able to do this. And I just want to ask you this year as we think about 2020, can you invest in one person? you know, like, I don't know who that person is. See, step one, pray. Figure out who that person is. Might be somebody under your own roof that you just need to prioritize that relationship. Maybe it's somebody somewhere else. But we have plenty of space in here, and we want to make disciples at this church. Jesus wants us to make disciples. That is his plan A for your life, not plan B or plan C or plan D. He wants to make disciples through you, and you can do this. All right, let me pray for us. Father, we are so thankful that you have given us this challenging task. Um, Lord, a lot of times we can feel like we're not up for the challenge, and we feel like that it would be better if you just did it, but... Instead, God, you have given us this task, and you have given us the tools. You have given us your word. You've given us these eyewitness testimonies uh, from your disciples and apostles that saw your ministry, and they saw you rise from the dead. And we have your word. We have instruction from your word. It gives us strength. It gives us encouragement. It gives us wisdom to make us wise The salvation equips us for every good work. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that dwells within us. And I pray that you would help us to walk in his ways and help us to be people that look like Jesus and are being molded more and more into the image of Christ. And may you put somebody on our hearts, God, that we need to be investing in, that we need to make a disciple, a follower of Jesus out of. Maybe it's somebody that doesn't know you, that we're around a lot. Maybe it's somebody that already knows you, but they need somebody to lead and guide them. I pray that you would put that person on our heart, God. Give us The faith give us the trust and give us the strength to make a move in that direction. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.